Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 42 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 42, the answer to life, the universe, and everything for uh, hitchhikers of the universe or the galaxy, whichever you prefer, uh, we have a whole slew of topics. We've got several questions and comments and feedback coming in from listeners, which is fantastic. And so we definitely want to put that early on in the show. And of course, if you would like to have your questions, comments, thoughts, whatever uh, included in the show, we would very much like to hear from you. Please email us at IQ at cbqz.org and we'll include that. Uh, we'll circle back on a couple of the topics that we had in the last show. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the, well, this actually comes from a listener comment as well. Uh, talk a little bit about the differences between John material from this past season and the upcoming future season of Hebrews first and second Peter. We'll talk a little bit about the history of both of the, or well, all three of those books. And we'll talk a, a, a bit about the statistics behind the data that's there, the unique verses, the unique words, key verses, and so forth, and the history and purpose of those books. We're going to talk a little bit about the Pacific Northwest next season. We tried to do that last episode, but ran out of time. And if we have time, I will uh, give a quick little CBQZ app update. Uh, there's been some activity going on with regard to CBQZ there, and I'd love to fill everybody in. So with that said, we'll just kind of dive into the first question. Uh, and this is actually came in uh, quite some time ago, but we've been so busy during the course of the, the quiz season, we haven't gotten re really around to this question until now, and it's uh, fairly appropriate. So the question reads as follows. I always struggled during the summer after district championships because either I did really well and wanted to build on that or really awful, and I wanted to show that I was better. So for other quizzers who might be in the same place I was, walk us through the summer, i.e., when should I start studying for the new year? And what are the pros and cons of studying early? Like the th stuff around high scores, Great West versus internationals versus a mid-year burnout and kind of balancing all things together. So Scott, what are, what are kind of your takes on this? My general take is it's good to start early because it is, because it is far easier to burn out than it is to gain excitement or motivation mid-year. So over the summer, my encouragement to pretty much all quizzers, regardless of if you're aspiring to get one question a meet, one question a quiz, or even if you want to go to internationals, is to start slow. Um, but when I, when I say slow, what I really mean is low pressure. <clears throat> so if you want to read over the material a lot, or listen to it, or um, do Bible studies on it, or try to find... Um, Context, unique words, if you know what those are, or things like like things are what I would consider to be lower pressure. I would say spend as much time as you want on that, but I would try to really limit higher pressure activities like memorizing the text with references and quoting it back with references word perfect. I would try to generally minimize that as it's fairly easy to burn yourself out with that sort of activity, which is more intense, more high focus. But familiarizing yourself with the material in a low-pressure way where if you miss a day or a few days, I think that's awesome, and it will only benefit you to be more familiar in general with the material and the flow and when certain people appear and disappear from the text and when certain themes appear and disappear from the text. Those things will be super beneficial if you start early on them. I completely agree with everything you said. I basically, I would have described it uh, in the sense of, um, you know, prepare your study materials over the summer, you know, in terms of like memorization lists, whatever sort of strategies that you want to employ uh, for the year. Don't necessarily lock yourself into a particular strategy, but certainly be thinking, do I want to specialize? Do I want to go general, you know, where, where do you want to attack and then put your study materials together over the summer, read the material, uh, listen to the material on audio. Uh, I, I think a lot of those different inputs can be really great. Uh, and then if you do memorize, you know, maybe just kind of take it casual, uh, kind of slow. So 
but maybe even hold off on the memorization stuff. It kind of depends on who you are and everybody's a little different. I would say really the, the, the time to get started is, uh, well, I mean, I could be wrong on this one, but I would say really right after DC, if you want to take even just a, a couple of days of a break or, or, you know, even on the drive home from DC, if you've got the materials handy and you just want to lightly read through it, listen to the audio, that sort of stuff, I think that's fine. It gives your, it gives kind of your brain kind of a nice sort of different wave pattern uh, to, to kind of focus on new material and enjoy the material for the value that's in it, the spiritual value that you're going to get out of it prior to getting really, really tightly connected with it in, in a couple of months later. Obviously, if you're going to be heading out to internationals, don't do that. Wait until after internationals. But now that internationals is over, this is a great time to just sort of uh, read and listen through the material. It's great to maybe pick up a commentary or two to kind of get some background. If you've got any kind of questions about specific points of the material, like what does this mean? What does that mean? Why is this important? Talk to your pastor, talk to your coach, talk to your parents, talk to us, send us questions at IQ at cbqz.org. And that's, you know, kind of fill in the, I don't know, the background state for the material. And then, I don't know, probably what, two, three weeks before scramble start memorizing. I don't know. Uh, Scott, when do you think would be a good time sort of in general? Cause I mean, certainly you want to start a little bit on the slow side and then ramp up the speed, but when's a good time to start like full bore memorization? I generally say once August hits, you can start doing, you know, <clears throat> some memorization at whatever pace you would like to be doing it at. <clears throat> um, yeah, I kind of use August as my um, line in the sand. Beginning of August? Yeah, just really any time in August. But okay. I would also say it depends on like what your aspirations are as a quizzer matter, and then kind of where you are in your arc as a quizzer matters. So the example I will give is myself. There was a year where I had been memorizing the whole material with no references and minimal review, and my goal was two questions a quiz. And I was kind of hitting that. And um, I was I qualified for Great West. This is when we took 25 quizzers. And at Great West, this was my second year of quizzing. At Great West, my eyes were very much opened for how valuable it was <clears throat> to memorize references and the level of excellence and precision that was available to quizzers um, if they put more time in specifically around memorizing with references. And I was very motivated. And so between Great West and District Championships, this was Corinthians year, I memorized, I added in the references for 1 Corinthians. I did not have time to do 2 Corinthians as well. But I, I did for 1 Corinthians, and District Champs was the most fun I've had quizzing up to that point because I knew references and I could get reference questions, and it was incredible. And so that offseason, I probably started fairly quick memorizing um, because I was very excited and there were things to do that I hadn't ever done before. Contrast that to after each of the next two years when I made internationals and especially um, one year where internationals was disappointing for me, um, I needed a break afterwards. I was not going to jump right into the next year's material. And so just knowing that like <clears throat> there are quizzers who are just getting older, learning more about quizzing and when they see what's possible, their excitement might grow. And I would definitely not like work hard to keep that quizzer from doing stuff in June and July. Um, but I think in general, it's a good principle to really not dive into hardcore memorization until August ish. And even then not put tons and tons of pressure on yourself. Um, but, uh, yeah, get into it slowly. Very cool. Well, anything else on this topic before we move on? I don't think so. Cool. So quizzers just kind of wait another week or two, listen to the material on audiobook, read through it. And, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks from now, maybe it's a good time to start memorizing. Uh, the scramble meet is in early, no, wait, mid September, if I remember correctly. I think it's like the end of the second week of September. So, you know, a mm, couple months away from where we are right now. So not far. Actually, I think less than two months away uh, at this point. So not very far away. So good chance to uh, kind of get in, start to get comfortable, and, and away we go. 
All right. So you guys will remember from last week's episode, we talked about several different things coming out of the rule book and we questioned the prevailing wisdom that the answer judge overrules the quiz master. And we talked a little bit about kind of where that idea comes from and what are the differences between say district where we pretty much all, all very rarely do we have answer judges. Uh, sometimes we do, and that's a very, very good thing, but rarely do we have answer judges versus say at great West where we always have answer judges or internationals where we always have answer judges. And what are sort of the differences there in terms of that stuff? And of course, one of our listeners replied after we were saying, I think uh, both Scott and I were like, I don't know where it is in the rule book. Well, this is why we have really awesome listeners because a listener wrote in and said, well, I found it for you. Uh, and he writes that under the Quizmaster's must section, I found this, uh, quote, when an answer is in question or is in the question different than what is on the card, the Quizmaster will discuss with the answer judge. However, uh, it is the answer judge who will determine the accuracy of its content and make a ruling accordingly. Uh, and this seems, and of course the quizzers, uh, or the listener uh, writing in is saying this seems to imply that the answer judge gets final authority in decisions on answers. That's true. And I interpret it that way, and I'm sure Scott interprets it that way as well. But technically, the language doesn't actually say that. Uh, it's rather that there is a make a ruling accordingly. Um, I don't know. You could interpret that to be the spokesman of the group, although that kind of leads us over back to the quizmaster side of the fence. But yeah, I, I generally think that that uh, it implies, uh, although not absolutely clear that the answer judge has final authority. And then uh, his point, second point, similarly under the answer judge rules, it states that quote, when an answer given in question or in the question, the uh, answer judge will determine the accuracy of its content and make a ruling accordingly. And the listener writes in, I think this pretty much confirms the idea that the answer judge is in charge of ruling on answers and on challenges though, I think the quiz master should number seven indicates that the quiz master is in charge. That is true. Um, but I really hate kind of the flip floppy nature of it. So Scott, what are your kind of thoughts on this? Yeah, I think these, these really strongly imply that the answer judge has final say now, as I think, it definitely makes most sense to say the quizmaster has final authority because in almost every case the quizmaster is the most experienced party at the table. Um, but I mean, this what I'm about to say really shouldn't be a rule because it's subjective. But rather than lay out this kind of hierarchical thing, I don't know. I think it's helpful just to emphasize the goal of the officials' table, which is just to get stuff right in a collaborative manner. And yeah. Regardless of if the answer judge has final authority or the quizmaster has authority, I think it would be weird for either to feel like they're wielding it, if that makes sense. I totally agree. I, but I think you can say that in the rule book with a single sentence and you can do it with one comma and make it incredibly objective and clear. So the idea being you say something – and of course I'm I'm fabricating this sentence in my head literally as I'm talking here. So bear with me. But – I'm imagining something along the lines of the the answer judge and the quiz master, along with optional support from, uh, if requested from the scorekeeper, shall collaboratively collaboratively discuss and decide rulings. However, if there is uh, a need for a final decision, that final decision comes from the quiz master or something along those lines, right? Um, I mean, it, it's it's it, it encourages collaboration 99% of the time, if not 100% of the time, you want to have a, a, a unanimous opinion from, from the officials on the table. But if there is ever a case where there is a difference of opinion, I think there needs to be like one person. And, and, and I'm not necessarily advocating that it needs to be the quiz master. It could be the answer judge. I think there's some argument to say that the quiz masters by and large are going to have more experience. So they should probably have the final authority on those things. Uh, but I don't particularly care. I think it just matters that it's clear and unambiguous. Like this is the person who ultimately has the, the final say if, if you cannot come to come sort of some sort of consensus uh, at the table, I get really, I get really, I don't know. What's the word? 
I get uncomfortable with the idea of like, well, certain question types, the quiz master clearly makes the ruling and is the final authority. Certain other question types, the answer judge has the final authority. And then in certain other question types, there are parts of that which are the quiz master's is the ultimate authority and the answer judge is the ultimate authority about the other part of the question. So like in reference questions, right? Uh, that part just really makes me uncomfortable. I think there should just be a clear cut. This is the way it is. Do it that way, you know, kind of thing. I don't know, Scott, what do you think? Yeah, that probably makes sense. Um, I had a thought and now it's gone. Oh, um, I think another, this is kind of changing the subject entirely, but, um, while you definitely want to get the exact right, the best ruling, because there will be subjective times, um, I think we see in any sport, like major sport that has video review, it seems like with every 15 seconds that the review goes on, um, it's a worse outcome, even if it's the correct, the slightly more correct ruling, if that makes sense. Yes. And so I really try um, to know the rule book on a principles basis and try to make that ruling as quickly as possible, knowing that there will be rulings that are very, very tough and are maybe 51% more one way according to the principles of the rule book. But I should be able to arrive at that instantly almost, even if um, I know that there's a good case for the opposite ruling, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. I think it does a lot for the room. It encourages the progression of a quiz. It encourages a rhythm. Uh, and so I, I, while I share your opinion that like, we definitely want to be striving for as absolute uniform accuracy as possible in our rulings, I'm willing to sacrifice a half a percent on that for the progression and the quality of the quiz, rather than having lots of interruptions that kind of drag things out a little bit. I think there is the opportunity when there is a disagreement that that's where the, the challenging comes into play. And that's a great opportunity to be then take more time. But if you're pre challenge, I think being able to uh, make not snap rulings, but accurate, reasonably quick rulings is a good plan overall. And then when the challenge pops up, that's when you can take a little bit longer, do the video replay and that kind of thing. But again, agreed. This is not one of those things where you want to take seven minutes to try to figure out one particular question. I think that slows things down way, way, way too much. Yep. So it's definitely not easy as a quiz master, but um, like when I'm deciding if what the quizzer said is enough to count them right on an interrogative, right? Which the criteria that I'm using to decide are fairly subjective, but they're very simple, right? Do I think they got the general wording and intent of my, the answer on my card. Um, there are times where it's tough and it's close, but I should be able to come to that ruling pretty quickly. Right, right. All right, well, let's move on. We are in a perfect spot, kind of right between two seasons, where we are saying goodbye to John. We've been in John the previous season, and we are saying hello to Hebrews and First and Second Peter. And we're saying hello to Hebrews first, even though uh, alphabetically First and Second Peter comes first, but uh, Hebrews is what we're going to be memorizing first. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about kind of the differences between John, Hebrews, and the two Peters. And let's talk about things like, you know, quizzing stuff, like statistical stuff, uh, key versus unique words and that sort of stuff. But let's also talk about the history behind the books a little bit, the authorship of the books and so on, and maybe some of the style of those things. So, uh, Scott, what are your kind of first thoughts on any of that stuff? So the biggest difference is narrative material versus non-narrative material. And I know that there are definitely quizzers that prefer narrative years. And so narrative just means it's more of a story with quotations and back and forth between people versus more of a letter where there's a lot fewer quotations. Um, and it's more of like one big statement or message. Um, I always found it way easier to memorize the non-narrative years, so the epistle years, because I was trying to memorize the material word perfect completely. And a lot of those connecting words like said, replied, answered, said to them, replied to them. Um, were very difficult to keep straight. And even though for the almost, the vast majority of them, you could argue that you never had to know them perfectly to get any single question right, um, I have always found that if you're holding yourself to the standard of word perfect, you're going to know the material overall um, better. 
than somehow knowing which parts of the material you did not have to know were perfect, if that makes sense. But um, there are definitely quizzers that are their brains or their interests are just more attuned to narrative years or more attuned to epistle years. So that is um, one main difference, just textually. Um, and then flowing from that, um, there's no situation questions this year. So if you're a quizzer that really enjoys situation questions, you won't have those. Um, the question type requirements are now different between narrative and non-narrative years. I don't believe we um, we have accepted those in the past within PNW. We may be in the future. Um, but regardless of what you're doing, the proportions are going to be a little bit different of the question types. There's probably going to be more of all other type, all other non-situation types, regardless of what question type minimums and maximums you're adhering to. So if you're a reference quizzer or multiple answer quizzer, um, you may get more of those than you have in the past. The other difference is length. So... Um, I have the wrong document open. Here's a thought. Um, something if people want to try and figure this out. In past years of John, I had it listed that there are 767 verses in the material. But this past year, it looks like there was 878 verses in the material. I am almost positive that there has been the same number of verses in John, the la- at least the last three times we've done it. And so I'd be curious, which of those is correct? And if so, can you figure out the reason that the other one was wrong. It could be as simple as I was one key off on my keyboard and just typed 767 instead of 878. Um, but if it's something cleverer than that, I would be very interested. But um, so let's just go with John having 878 verses in the material. Hebrews in First and Second Peter has 469. Way, way, way less. Now, at least in PNW, the key verses that we specify, um, there's a a much greater percentage of the material that that is key in Hebrews year, but it's still fewer total verses. So last time we had 174 key verses in Hebrews in First and Second Peter, and the last two years of John we've had 231 and 193. Um, so because a greater percentage of the material will be key, it will make it easier for um, past key verse specialists to maybe memorize more of the material. It would also mean that more non-key verse questions will come from key, verse, key verses, which will also help out key verse specialists. Um, and then another big change between a long material like John and, and, I believe, the absolute shortest material in Hebrews and First and Second Peter is if you want to go to internationals, um, I'm assuming PNW will take one team of five, the bar is a lot higher for you. In John... Um, even in years like 20 years ago where the overall material knowledge within PNW was a lot higher, still, like, if you knew all of the material and reviewed it, like, you were set pretty well for internationals. Um, but when it comes to Hebrews and First and Second Peter, it's often not enough to just know the whole material well. Um, it often takes being very good, perhaps the best in our district, at a specific question type. So if you're the b- absolute best reference quizzer and are confident of getting two to four reference questions right every single quiz, that will set you up very well because that's a consistent source of points. Um, because in Hebrews year, more quizzers will know more a larger percentage of the material, and so the jumping speeds will probably be faster, um, which means more risk for international quizzers on multiple answers and interrogatives and finished questions for sure. Um, and so any work you can do to become the absolute expert on a question type will decrease your overall risk as you are seeking to quiz out every single quiz and be within the top five. Yeah, very interesting. So what were you saying for numbers for, uh, I just looked it up in the authoritative source of all things quizzing, which is the CBQZ app. Uh, CBQZ has for John 879 verses for John. Does that seem right to you? That matches the 870, that quote-unquote matches the 878 we had last year. I believe there is one chapter where the verse, the last numbered verse in the chapter does not indicate the total number of verses in the chapter because one verse was skipped. I do not know how CBQZ Uh, counts, if that makes sense. Well, that's a good point. And actually, you know what, I should actually check one thing really quickly before I say anything more because I'd be willing to bet there might be a header row. Is there a header row? Uh, There is not a header row. So, no, I have... I have a full 879 verses uh, in John. So that, and that wouldn't count a skipped verse. Are you able to tell me how many verses you have in John 5? In John John 5, 5, I probably could. 
Because in the official schedule for last year, it is 46 with an asterisk, which means I would I would be willing to bet the last numbered verse in John 5 is 47, but there's a skipped verse number somewhere in that chapter. Uh-huh. Well, and I bet just I bet just someone knows this off the top of their head, but they probably do because we have awesome listeners. But I currently have oh let's go through there I have forty seven verses in John five. Uh, now that's forty seven not by like verse number, just the count of the. Well, I just hopped into Bible Gateway and there is forty seven, and it looks like there is no verse four in the NIV. Interesting stuff. So that might be the difference between 879 and 878, but I would be willing to bet that it has been 878 all along, and my past data was just entered incorrectly by me. Um, uh, I confirm. I confirm that in CBQZ there is not a verse 4 in John 5. So there you go. There you go. But, but le- like eight years ago, 22% of John was a key verse. Last year, 26% of John is a key verse, so quite close to each other. But last go around in Hebrews, 37% of the material was a key verse within PNW. Um, and I would expect a similar percentage um, this year. Yeah, yeah. And we have a key verse list that is published uh, out on the website for this upcoming season. I don't know what the stats are on it. Um, but yeah, I've got 469 verses for Hebrews first and second Peter. So yeah, tremendously fewer verses uh, than what we had in John. So, I mean, really, if you want to go to Great West or if you're a quizzer in the 20th to 50th range in the district, um, this will be an easier year for you. You can do probably a similar amount of work and have a higher average and get more questions. But for the very, very top quizzers, you may have to do more work to retain um, a similar placement. Um, And you may have to do more work to get a similar average. I'm not sure about the average, but at least for placement, I'm expecting averages just kind of across the board to be a little bit higher. Um, and that just really reflects the ease of material. Um, and I, I don't know this for sure, but would you think that in non-narrative years, there will be fewer interrogative questions that start with an interrogative word? Like, are there fewer people and places happening in an epistle? I don't know that it really, I don't, it'll be interesting to run the stats on that. I don't, I wouldn't suspect that there would be much of a difference. Um, I think certainly the who's will be significantly smaller, but I think the what's can be just as if just as common in a narrative versus non-narrative year for an interrogative question. Yep. And there's, there's, there's actually kind of a lot of differences in Hebrews and first and second Peter. The chapters are just going to be shorter because there's, there might be a similar number of chapters in the material, but each one is very short, which means if you're a CVR or a quote quizzer, you may, there may be tons of chapters where you don't have to deal with a reference beyond 20 which means if you know inflection, um, whether the quiz master is going up or down on that word verse, and you know which chapters have 20 or fewer verses, you can jump very fast on those specific chapters. Now, that obviously takes work and preparation and the ability to alter your jump speed when you hear those specific chapter numbers, like when the question's being read, but you can gain a massive advantage. Um, because you're not scared about getting stuck with 20 or 30 or 40. Um, so that's a big deal when it comes to John. Um, Hebrews and First and Second Peter, another uh, byproduct of the shorter chapters is chapter reference questions become very easy. I think chapter reference questions in a gospel year at internationals is probably the hardest like mix. Um, makes it the most difficult of any combination in quizzing. But when you go to Hebrews and First and Second Peter year, you can... You can get a syllable and a half on um, chapter references, even if that first syllable is an interrogative word, and still have a reasonable chance of getting it right because you can scan through the chapter. Um, and then I had one more thing. Hebrews and First and Second Peter is three different books, and that can sometimes be different where um, when that book name is being read, you have to listen to it and understand with a book name and not mix yourselves up, especially between first and second Peter. And that was tough for me. I think it's toughest in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians year, because there's kind of some similar phonetic sounds between those books. Um, but Hebrews and first and second Peter, it's definitely different. You're like, okay, you're often latching onto the chapter number that you're given on a CVR or CR. And you have to remember that book that was read. Yes, indeed. Well, so let's talk a little bit about, 
maybe the history of some of these books. Obviously, John, uh, the Gospel of John was written by John, uh, not terribly surprising there. And it turns out that the uh, letters of Peter, the first and second letters of Peter, were written by none other than, you guessed it, Peter. So those are pretty straightforward. Uh, but Hebrews, interestingly enough, has kind of a little bit of, not controversy, but there's been some scholarly debate over the many centuries as to its authorship. So Scott, who do you think, uh, who do you think wrote Hebrews? I believe the prevailing wisdom is that it's Paul, but I do not know. The prevailing wisdom is that it that is written by Paul, and there are some reasons to believe that is true, and there are some reasons to be not a hundred percent sure about it. Um, there's some very, some interesting history there. So traditionally, uh, Paul the apostle was thought to be the author of Hebrews. And in fact, uh, from very early on, from a very early date, uh, Hebrews was collected in the writings of Paul. So, I mean, prior to there being a sort of an official Bible, these are the, these are the New Testament. These are the books of the New Testament that are now canonized and so forth. Uh, not canonized the canonical, uh, books of, of the New Testament. Uh, prior to that taking place, uh, churches, uh, and usually bishops, uh, over areas of, of churches would collect writings together because again, you know, they didn't have Xerox machines until much later. Uh, you know, we did, people would have to painstakingly copy down, uh, you know, from one letter to another, the material. So these, uh, writings were highly prized for a lot of reasons, uh, both their, uh, spiritual, uh, significance, but also the fact that they were not easily duplicatable. Uh, so, I mean, they could be duplicated. Uh, writing was fairly common, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something as easy as what we can replicate in, in our day to day, or even in the last, you know, several uh, decades or so. So uh, these churches and these bishops started collecting writings and they would uh, not bind them together, but essentially group them together. And traditionally Hebrews was was kind of grouped together uh, from Paul very early on. And this took place as uh, early, I believe, as like the late second century or something along those lines when with some of the codexes that were put together. Uh, that uh, Paul's writings and Hebrews were kind of lumped together. This is a very good indication that the early church, the very early church, the first hundred years of the church, considered probably uh, considered that Paul was the writer of Hebrews. That doesn't mean it's absolutely the case, but they generally considered it to be uh, the case. And uh, that continued for a while, but a couple centuries later, and I forget exactly when this took place, there was some debate around, or, or uh, doubts, I guess is probably the better word, around whether Paul was the actual author. And I think this happened like around the end of the second century, maybe the third century or something along those lines. Uh, and if I remember correctly, I think it was mostly on the Roman side. Well, I guess this is pre Schism. So I guess it would just be the Western, uh, side of Christendom, uh, at the time. So, uh, Rome and, and, uh, the whole Western side of, of the uh, Roman Empire at the time, there was some debate over whether or not Paul was actually the, the author. And some of that came from the language itself. So as you're reading through Hebrews, you'll feel like there are certain styles, the feel of the language feels very Pauline, uh, certainly from like, if you remember, uh, first and second Corinthians from last year, uh, or well, I guess the season before this, just this last, uh, season, uh, if you can, if you read those two books and then you're reading Hebrews, they kind of feel similar, but there's kind of a, there's a, there's definitely a Delta, right? The, the letter, the first and second letters of, uh, to Corinth were, have a very, very similar style. Uh, and then when you switch over to Hebrews, it feels at least to me a little bit more, uh, professorial. It feels just a little bit different, uh, to, to an, to a degree. And that may have been just the age at when, uh, the, the age of Paul being a little bit different where he was in his ministry, who he was writing to, the audience might be different. Uh, so that could be some of the stylistic differences that are there. Uh, but some of that comes into play. So he the Hebrews as a book 
is really around the idea of convincing Jews, devout Orthodox Jews, a little O, not, not big O Orthodox Jews, but, but generally Orthodox believing Jews, helping them to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the prophecy of the Messiah. He's, uh, he's here. He didn't just die. He is, he is God. He is, uh, a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is this, uh, uh, spiritual uh, bridge, some of that uh, imagery that we have of a spiritual bridge to God, uh, God the Father, that is, uh, comes from the notion of, of things that are coming out of Hebrews. We have to be careful about this, though, because we don't want to say that Jesus is entirely separate from God the Father and that we don't, we don't, we don't want to put Jesus in the center between us and God the Father, because Jesus is as much God as the Father is God. Uh, but there is this sort of spiritual bridge to a connection with the Father that can uh, uh, be provided to us through a relationship with Christ. And that comes from uh, a lot of what Paul was talking, well, the author of Hebrews. I tend to lean towards it being Paul. I think it's probably Paul, but there, I want to be respectful. There are some folks who, who take a different view on that and, and have some good backing uh, behind that. The other thing that uh, is, there are lots of actually several things that I find really remarkable and uh, powerful around uh, Hebrews. One of which, uh, one of my favorite chapters of, of all of the New Testament is uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where uh, the author goes through a sequence of what faith means and talks about faith of the ancients, faith of the Old Testament uh, leaders and prophets and so forth, and uh, explains that to us, that, that these their that faith was important to them. And that stuff is just very meaningful to me. And I, and I, I feel great connection with that sort of uh, language and the history that, that's behind there. Now, first and second Peter, very different. These are a lot more... I don't want to say informal, but they're, they're, they feel more to me closer in style to say James, although maybe not quite that far than, uh, say Hebrews. Hebrews tends to be, I guess, for me, kind of high language, professorial language. First and second Peter tends to be a little bit more grounded down to earth, but definitely spiritual leadership principles that kind of come out of, of first and, uh, first and second Peter and stuff that I think is, uh, very applicable, especially to leaders within the church today and would be leaders within the church today. And I don't mean leaders in the sense of pastors, although that certainly is the case. I mean, folks who want to uh, have their faith be a meaningful part of who they are, are naturally going to be disciples for Christ. I see those as a form of leadership within the larger body of the church. And there's a lot of messages from first and second Peter that can, can uh, apply. So some stylistic differences between there. So as you're memorizing, kind of making that jump between Hebrews and the, the two Peters, you might find, um, I don't know, not jarring. There's definitely going to be a stylistic switch. It's probably not going to be as significant as the the jump between James and Romans. Uh, I, I find that to be a huge stylistic jump uh, and sometimes a very different, a difficult jump uh, to make going from one to the other. I think James is a fairly easy uh, book to memorize. Romans is also generally easy, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit harder than, than James is, at least from my perspective. I think the inverse is true here. We're going to start with Hebrews, which is a little bit harder to memorize than I think first and second Peter, except when you're talking about references, right? So like what, what Scott was just saying, uh, where disambiguating mentally the, uh, between first and second Peter can be tricky because all of these chapters are very short. The actual books themselves are fairly short and being able to place that down very specifically for references can be, uh, can be tricky. I have a question, Griffin, and I hope yeah. I'm not out of place. Um, there was an idea floated that may have gotten lost in the shuffle. And that was to start with first and second Peter. And oh, I thought it was kind of a cool idea especially since we don't do anything with another district until we're done with the whole material. That is very interesting. I have not, I didn't hear about that idea. You mean just in PNW? Yeah, just because the perception, so this is, was from a program leader, and the perception was that um, first and second Peter are harder to memorize than Hebrews, and um, they're often both harder and the least well-memorized because they're at the end of the material, because usually the end of the material is least well-memorized in general every single year. And so mm -hmm. why not throw them 
out front, and then the easier to memorize and probably more generally familiar Hebrews comes second. And um, as a whole, PNW might be better memorized on it. Interesting. That is a fascinating idea. So it turns out we are not going to do that uh, in PNW this upcoming year. I was just, I actually just pulled up the the official schedule just to make sure I'm not saying anything incorrect. Um, we are starting with Hebrews and then going to first and then finally second Peter. It is interesting. So the theory behind that idea was that the Peters were more difficult to memorize than Hebrews because I generally, I mean, for me, I, I tend to see them as a little bit easier. Well, um, I may be remembering the conversation wrong, and I feel bad that I have forgotten about it to the point where I didn't even float it to you. Um, <laughs> but I can I can definitely fill you in on details after the fact, and you can hear it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. I mean, um, what what's your what's your feeling about the difference between say the two Peters versus Hebrews in terms of uh, difficulty of memorizing? It's hard for me to say because, um, well, maybe it's easier for me to say. I memorized this material twice. Um, so it's by far the material that I know the best, and um, I could probably stumble my way through Hebrews right now, not having quoted it really for eight years, and I would I would be able to do next to nothing in the Peters. Um, I don't know if that's indicative of anything, but I do think that they get lost in the shuffle, and whatever material is at the end of the year meets four and five, I think is always uh, memorized far less. Um, and... I mean, thinking purely competitively for, like, Great West, um, I think more material will be memorized by our top 20 quizzers if we led with the with first and second Peter. That's true. Well, and of course, you know, quizzers out there, if you're listening, uh, that's a pretty good hint that uh, once you get done with District Meet 3, uh, barrel into first Peter and second Peter and get those guys memorized, uh, sort of redouble your efforts uh, when we make the transition into the Peters, because you're going to have a rather significant advantage, even within our district, I think, uh, to adding more energy into the Peters than, say, the second half of Hebrews, or being able to store up some energy and really attack the Peters when the time comes. And then certainly that's going to aid you significantly at Great West and Internationals. Now, of course, at Internationals, like Scott was saying, with the material being something like just barely over 50% of what the material was for the John year, uh, you're going to have to know everything really, really, really well uh, to do effective uh, at Internationals. So it's going to be... Um, it's going to be a difficult year uh, competing at those levels. So, you know, certainly get your, if you're, if you're aiming for that bar, get yourself really specific on everything. But if you're looking at the sort of the great West bar, uh, yeah, focusing on the Peters will do some uh, wonderful good. A few more things. Um, the jumping was quite speedy at internationals this year from the few quizzes that I watched, but especially on specialty questions, the speed will be pushed to its absolute limit next year. That is just what happens in Hebrews and First and Second Peter, and you got to know your stuff on CBR, CR, MA, um, quote and finish, and it's it's a lot of fun to participate in and watch. Um, I don't know if it was Hebrews year or not, but there was one year at internationals where a quizzer just worked harder on chapter references than maybe anyone's ever worked, and I think won the jump on every single chapter reference in their quizzes and at like 85% accuracy or 90% accuracy. And that sort of work is really, really fun to watch at the internationals level. And then within our district, there was a quizzer who was, I think, incredibly smart in their uh, strategy. And for each meets material, meet one, two, three, four, and five, they would first memorize the final chapter for that meet. Because they knew that within each meet, the last chapter is the least well-memorized by the quizzing community as a whole. Um, and so doing that within each meet is a good strategy. And then doing it for kind of on the year, viewing the year as a meet for meets four and five and those first and second Peter, as Griffin was talking about, is also a great strategy to really be efficient about the material that you are putting the most amount of work into. Yeah, absolutely. A lot more opportunities there. And then the other thing is take inspiration in this coming year, both at the district level and at these uh, inter-district competitions. Uh, take a page from the PNW Internationals team 
from the John year, and especially uh, I'm referring to quiz number two in finals, don't let the your competition push you into pre-jumping. Don't let your competition kind of encourage you to jump too fast, make errors, not get enough to be able to answer. Uh, you be in control of your jumping speed uh, so that you can reliably get a certain percentage of the material correct or the certain number of jumps correct uh, at a level that you're targeting. Don't let somebody else dictate that speed for you. The speed control of quizzes especially at the higher competition levels. So even at district uh, levels, uh, as you're heading in towards the final quizzes of each meet, they're going to get increasingly brutal. And at finals at the district meet, it's going to be really, really tight. Don't let the other teams force you to pre-jump. Absolutely. And to be, well, to hit one of my pet peeves, Griffin, there's no real such thing as pre-jumping. So just don't let other teams push you into a speed that is imprudent by however you define imprudent based on your study. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the semantic difference there, but yeah, that's what I mean when I say pre-jump. Don't it's a it's an it's a sort of like an error bar. If you jump sooner than a particular point, right? Uh so so let's say if you know the material uh perfectly well, right? Uh which of course, you know, some some don't. That's understandable. But imagine you have the the material fully memorized. If you get the entire question, there's basically no reason you shouldn't be able to answer it. Like you should be able to, sorry for the double negative there. You should be able to answer the question if you get the entire question uh, out toward you, right? This is why bonus questions at internationals are sort of gimmies, right? Uh, so the, as you get faster and faster in your jumping, the, the probability of being able to answer the question goes from 100% down to something, right? And if you get to a point where there is a point where it gets to zero, right? There is a point where if you jump too fast, there is just no hope unless you're insanely lucky. There is no hope of answering the question. So I guess you could call that a pre-jump. But even then, you could get lucky, right? Um, but I would say that if you jump with a 5% chance of getting the question right, that's too early. Uh, 10% chance, that's probably too early. Once you bring it down to like 50%, I don't know, that's probably a little too early, but I don't know, what, sort of, Scott, what do you feel would be a good target? Like 70%, 60%? That's a good question, and I've definitely wrestled with these sorts of optimization questions around jumping speed and accuracy, because obviously jumping speed and accuracy are inversely related. The faster you jump, the... um the more your accuracy will go down. Um, and so at the internationals level, once you hit 55 or 60% accuracy on your one jumps, you're doing pretty awesome. At Within our district, you probably need to be higher than 70% in general. And so if you can, if as a team, you can be winning close to half the jumps in a quiz in our district at um, 65, 70, 75% accuracy, you'll win pretty much everything. And so m my goal was always to figure out what speed I had to jump at to, so for myself, to um, quiz out every single quiz um, while keeping my expected accuracy as close as I could to 100% because I was always trying to get a 90. So I would study really hard and then jump as slow as possible but still win enough jumps at a high enough accuracy to quiz out every single quiz. And it's just this delicate balance that you're kind of playing with depending on how well you've studied, what your opponents are. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. There was one year at internationals where um, among the top three scoring teams for the meet, um, one of them was at um, over 70% accuracy and a ton of bonuses and close to one-third of the jumps won in a quiz, or even less, like really small. And then there was another team that won 60% of the jumps in prelims um, at about a 55% accuracy, and they scored basically the same. So it was like two different ways to skin a cat, and I just I love that those that that's out there, right? There's not one perfect way to quiz. 
Right. And a lot of this is going to be based on team dynamic uh, beyond just what an individual quizzer is going to do. So certainly as you're preparing, you want to be discussing these ideas with your team. If you're the captain, uh, you know, discuss it with your team. If you're not the captain, you know, uh, collaborate with your captain uh, and certainly with your coach, because there's a lot of different ways to uh, attack the problem. Absolutely. Well, so looking forward in the next year, uh, as I mentioned, we are going to be starting with Hebrews and then working into the Peters. And for uh, the scramble meet, we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter one and then, sorry, uh, more than just chapter one. We're going to be, <laughs> that would be crazy. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter one through Hebrews chapter four for the scramble meet. The scramble meet is going to be on September 14th. And of course, as is tradition, it will be hosted at Alliance Bible Church in Covington. And then district meet number one is going to be at EBC Eastridge Baptist Church in Kent. And then district meet number two is going to be at uh, Madras in November, just a little bit before, uh, I believe it's the weekend before Thanksgiving uh, over in Madras. So that'll be uh, great. Hopefully there won't be any snow or any issues in travel there. Then we're not really sure. So district meet number three is currently scheduled to be January 3rd and 4th, but we don't know where it's going to be yet. We have... Uh, it's probably going to be in Dallas. We're not super 100% sure of that yet. Um, so Dallas folks are going around right now, uh, trying to make, uh, trying to lock that up and confirm, uh, what's going on there. Housing is going to be of a particular concern for that meet if we're able to do it in, in Dallas. Hopefully we'll be able to do it in Dallas. It's a great location. Uh, so that's kind of still TBD, uh, for right now for meet number three. Then meet number four is going to be at Lighthouse. Uh, that's going to be in Puyallup. And that'll be the first meet, uh, where first Peter comes into play. So at the th meet number three, that's the full, uh, set of Hebrews all through chapter 13. And then the first four chapters of first Peter will be for meet four at lighthouse. And then meet number five is currently scheduled for March 27th and 28th, but we don't know where it's going to be. Uh, so if you are from a church that is not one of the churches that I've mentioned so far, uh, please, I beg you, talk to your coach and and have them look at the schedule around district meet number five and see if we can uh, get a host for that meet. I would very much like to be able to lock that down fairly quickly. So Great West is lots of TBDs. We don't know exactly uh, when it's going to be. We don't really officially know where it's going to be, although it is very likely going, very, very likely going to be the same location up at, um, I think it's called Crow's Nest, uh, up in the, um, sort of the eastern, right at the crest of the eastern side of the Canadian, uh, Rockies there. So, a uh, beautiful location, probably going to be the same lo uh, spot. We just don't know exactly when it's going to be. That'll be announced uh, when time is available to figure that out. And then district championships for PNW. This is actually very exciting. So district championships is going to be April 17th and 18th. And we've got something pretty exciting booked up for that. So as you recall from this last year, we held district championships at the Red Lion uh, Motel and Convention Center in uh, uh, not Longview, uh, Kelso in Kelso, Washington. This year, uh, district championships is going to be up in Easton, Washington, in the middle of the Cascade Mountain Range at the Double K Christian Camp. It is really cool up there. Uh, the Double K uh, Christian Camp and Retreat Center. You can Google it and see pictures, and it's gorgeous up there. They've been doing a lot of remodeling and revamping and updating of the facility, so I'm very excited for the opportunity for us to go up there. And I'd like to point out, I don't have this fully confirmed, but certainly... Quizzing is going to be Friday and Saturday, and we're going to be finishing up with quizzing uh, uh, on Saturday towards the late afternoon. But my understanding is no one is using the camp on the 19th on Sunday. So if there are some teams that want to stick around and uh, use some of the awesome facilities of the camp, uh, you can the following day. The weather is going to be fantastic. There's a huge lake for swimming. They've got all kinds of canoes and rafting things. They've got... Uh, let's see, they've got a huge uh, disc golf course. They've got, let's see, hiking. They've got a rock wall to climb. They've got paintball. I forgot. They've also, that, that's new. 
Uh, so there's just a, a huge amount of fun stuff to be able to do there. And certainly, as you can imagine, Friday and, and Saturday, there's probably not going to be a lot of time to do any of that sort of stuff because we'll be quizzing. So if you have the opportunity to bend the ear of your coach about staying over for the 19th, uh, that might be something you want to try to uh, talk them into. Uh, and of course, food is going to be provided to the camp. Lodging is going to be provided to the camp. It's going to be a, a great opportunity there. All right. So with that being said, I do wanted to wrap up a little bit of a quick note around uh, some changes going on with CBQZ. So we've been talking about CBQZ for, I don't know, a couple of years now. And uh, it turns out that uh, so it, at internationals, the answer judges were using CBQZ to look things up, just the material reference and so forth. And uh, folks around different districts are starting to play around with it and starting to use it at their district level. And I'm getting really embarrassed with it because it was kind of a rapid prototype that I kept adding features to in kind of a kludgy way to be able to get features out the door fairly quickly. The underlying architecture is stable, but I'm not really super happy about just continuing to continuing to sort of bolt features onto this thing. So what I've done over this last, I don't know, few days or so is I've cleared through all of the backlog of tickets uh, that were in CBQZ, sort of the uh, work that needed yet to be done. There were some uh, quizzer flashcard features. There was a um, uh, search the material, uh, either case perfect or with punctuation and a few other different little bugs and ticks and so forth. I've wrapped all of those up and released a, a what I'm calling the quote unquote final code update release of CBQZ. I did that uh, earlier today. Uh, and so, like I said, it has the, you know, the flashcards thing. Oh, it sorts the books in, in a different order. So, uh, typically the books for first and second Peter were listed prior to Hebrews because alphabetically one comes before H. Uh, so I flipped that around now. Hebrews is listed first. Uh, but of course you can define that based on whatever you want. Uh, but all of that is out, out there. And what I'm going to be starting to work on now is a completely new CBQZ from scratch. And I'm not going to call it CBQZ. I'm going to call it something not CBQZ because it turns out when you're talking to the CQLT at IBQ about CQ, CBQZ, the letters get all jumbled up. And, um, that's not good. So I'm going to come up with a better name for it. If you have ideas for a name for this thing, uh, please email us at IQ at CBQZ because, uh, .org, uh, because we'd like to hear from you and, uh, like to come up with a better name, uh, than CBQZ because that's kind of getting old to say over and over and over again. So, uh, I think that's it. Um, sorry, Scott, I kind of blitzed through a couple of things there. Was there anything you wanted to comment on? I don't know if you mentioned about um, we need to make some rulebook decisions within PNW before the next year begins. So if you are any quizzer who has thoughts about that, send that up on the chain through your coaches and program leaders. And if you're a program leader, please let um, the PNW Board of Directors know so that we can make really good decisions. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very good point. Um, we need to figure out what of the new internationals rulebook if we're going to just adopt it 100%, what kind of addendums or alterations we want to make as a district, and we need to make those decisions very quickly. So if you have any input, like Scott said, we really, really need to hear from you now, uh, because once we get to scramble, we will, we were, the goal is to have all of this stuff sort of locked down, actually not sort of, we really want to have it locked down. So there is not ambiguity as we're, uh, moving throughout the year. The, um, one other thing I forgot to mention is also adult quizzing. Uh, I, do you remember if we talked about this at, in the last podcast? You hinted at it. I hinted at it. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to be hinting at it more. So the idea is to think about ways of implementing an adult quizzing league in a very small capacity in a way that doesn't disrupt or take away from youth quizzing uh, in any capacity. So something along the lines of uh, maybe one quiz per meet or something that's an adult league uh, and only have a very small number of teams uh, of adults that are involved there. We're still working out the logistics. It may not happen, but I'd like to see 
the possibility of something like that at least discussed and figured out. Uh, there are actually, I think now up to five different districts that are, uh, our district being one of those five that are looking at the idea of adult quizzing in a very small capacity. Uh, and there might be a place for, say, one adult quizzing, uh, or one adult quiz at internationals next year, which could be pretty cool. So we'll see how things go there. All right. So with that being said, I want to let everybody know we are going to be skipping next week. Uh, and then, but then we are back to a regular weekly schedule, uh, in August and our first full week of August, that first episode that we record in August, we are going to have a special guest join us. We are going to have, uh, Alan from Metro join us. Alan is the quiz master from Metro. Metro is, if I recall correctly, it's basically, uh, New York City, Long Island, New Jersey, ish that sort of area uh and so it'll be great to uh, have him on board talk to him about his experience and what's going on on the very east coast we're sort of the the you know he's over on the the far east we're over on the far west and we'll have a coming together of the different districts and talk about some of that stuff so it'll be very interesting yeah looking at the map looks like Metropolitan is based in Newark, New Jersey, as far as their district office. But I always thought of them as New York, and that's probably not far off from the truth, but over in that area. Yep. Very cool. All right. Well, with that, we'll bring the show to a close and uh, very much want to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org and then follow us on Twitter and we can have conversations on Twitter as well. You can follow us at Inside Quizzing and throw us questions uh, publicly on at Inside Quizzing on Twitter. And we'd be very excited to hear from you and to answer you and uh, would love to hear your ideas for either podcast topics of the future or questions or debates or anything like that. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, I will uh, say good night all and thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. See you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.